Cyber Insiders from Adama. Hello and welcome to Cyber Insiders, the podcast that shines a light on what it's really like to work in the world of cybersecurity. I'm John Maynard, Chief Executive at Adama. In this episode of Cyber Insiders, we have cybersecurity professor Debbie Ashenden with us in the studio. Consultant, author, speaker, and lecturer, Debbie has over two decades of experience in the field of cybersecurity and has worked extensively across the public and private sectors for recognizable names such as Barclaycard, Reuters, the Ministry of Defense, and Euroclear. Today, Debbie holds the DST Group University of Adelaide Joint Chair in Cybersecurity and is Professor of Cybersecurity at the University of Portsmouth. She is also a visiting professor of Royal Holloway, University of London. Her research interests are in the social and behavioural aspects of cybersecurity, particularly in finding ways of patching with people rather than with technology, with a focus on building security dialogues between communities. She is currently researching transdisciplinary approaches to modelling complex warfighting, how to fuse behavioural science with cyber deception, and the socio-technical aspects of designing complex military systems. Debbie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. It's good to be here. So, Debbie, before we start talking about the world of cybersecurity, I'm going to ask you a few quick-fire questions so the, the audience can get to know you. Cats or dogs? Cats. What are you watching on Netflix right now? So I'm not just at the moment because I've been travelling for three weeks, but my go-to on Netflix is Archer. I'm late to the party, but, yeah, Archer. That's that's it's very good, I must say. And I also must say that other, other streaming platforms are available. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's the last city you visited on holiday? Hobart in Tasmania. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> oh, fantastic. <laughs> very pretty. Uh, what's your favourite music and why? So anything from the 80s, because those oh, were my teenage course, years. Of course, yes, we all love the 80s. <laughs> um, but I'm also a huge Bob Dylan fan. Very good, very good. And last one, what film correctly or most inaccurately depicted cybersecurity? So it's not a film. It was a TV program, um, An Undeclared War, um, the GCHQ story. Uh, this I've, is going to be a spoiler. I'm only on episode two. All right. I won't, I won't <laughs> no, you be, go ahead. I go won't ahead. spoil it. Um, uh, well, I might actually. Uh, so uh, two reasons why. Um, one, because I think it was technically accurate, and I happen to know the person who was the technical advisor on that program, so I believe it's technically accurate. Accurate, But I also really liked the visualisations of, of being inside a computer network, and so I thought that was a good combination. I have to say, I didn't think the storyline was that strong. Sorry. Yeah, I think you're referring to the level of uh, disorganisation and, and randomness in terms of overall response, but yes. <laughs> Very good. Thank you, Debbie. Debbie, that is quite an incredible CV. Everything that you've done, you know, your academic credentials. But what I'd like to do is is rewind really to to near the start where you you started off with a master's in Victorian literature and then moved on to a PhD in computer science. So what eventually led you through to computer science and ultimately into a career in cybersecurity? Uh, thanks, John. Um, 
So I started with English literature because it was a subject that I absolutely adored. And I recommend that anybody does the subject they adore as an undergrad and, and as a postgrad. Um, and my intention was to go on and do a PhD in Victorian literature. Um, but after I finished my MA, I realised that there weren't that many jobs for people who had MAs in Victorian literature. And I'd always dabbled with computing. So I had a home computer quite early on and a modem. And it was at a point in time where the UK government was paying people with my kind of background to go back to university and convert into computer science. So I did a conversion master's into computer science, then realised that my CV looked a bit stupid. You know, I'm really good at English literature and now I'm really good at computer science. Um, and so I contacted my nearest large employer, large employer to go and do my um, master's, computer science master's project with them. And that was... Um, what, what was then DERA, part of UK MOD, and is now DSTL. Um, and they, the, the area that they put me into is what we now know as cybersecurity. Of course, back in 1998, we didn't call it that. I was actually in the Department of Electronic Warfare. Um, and I loved it, and I stayed, and that's it. I grew up with cybersecurity. And what, what, what did you love most about that, that transition into, um, into that type of sphere of work? Um, I loved the fact that I was learning something new all the time. My master's in computer science was really hard work. You know, I hadn't done math since I was 16. Um, and working in the defence research environment was an extension of that. And it was a point in time where I was literally told as a new grad to go around and find a project that looked interesting and see if I could help out. Um, and so it was that working with so many people with different backgrounds, different skill sets. And we were just... We were just learning as we went. It was brilliant. And it's it's amazing when, uh, you know, I had a look at your research and everything you've been doing at, in your current roles. And um, you very much pivoted from that computer science, technical, mathematical background, if you like, through your academic career into, you know, a real you know idealist around how we can use behavioral theory, theory and, and, uh, and, and social to, uh, to improve cybersecurity. So... Can you expand a little bit on, I guess, that transition and why, I guess, why behavioural aspects of cybersecurity have come to the forefront of your research? So for me, it started off with um, risk, risk management. Um, I did my, uh, my master's dissertation on risk management for um, cybersecurity. And I remember thinking at the time, we've got all these tools for managing risk, but people will always do bad things at the end of the day. And that's when I started to think, OK, we need to we need to know more about why people do what they do, um, because that's a, that at that point in time, that was very much a missing part of cybersecurity research. I mean, there are lots of people doing it now, but that was what that was what started me on that track. And I think working in a defence environment, both at, at Malvern and at uh, the Defence Academy at Shrivenham, I always worked alongside psychologists as well as computer scientists. And in my team at Shrivenham, I had plenty of psychologists and computer scientists, software engineers. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing because uh, we'll, we'll, delve, we'll delve deeper into that and some of, some of your, your findings, some of your recommendations. But, you know, in an industry that is, you know, heavily proliferated by technology and technology being, the, you know, the, sil the perceived silver bullet of solving some of these information security problems, with marketing that, you know, talks about automation and the autonomous security operation center and things like that. You know, certainly there's there's definitely still a need for a human, you know, in terms of human expertise, but also, I guess, human vulnerabilities uh, in yes. terms of what we, what you know, an organizational construct and actually, you know, how we think about 
user awareness and, and those types of things. So, where, where, you know, what are the human vulnerabilities in, in a security system? Well, the human vulnerabilities, using the term human vulnerabilities means that you have to accept that the system is about more than just the technology. So the problem space for security stretches from from the, the behavior of the end user right the way through the system to the people at the other end who are trying to attack it. And I think you have to take into account the cognitive processes of both ends of that, that spectrum to understand the human vulnerabilities. Um, but of course, it not only... It not only determines how you define what the system is, um, you also have to think about what the role of the human is and what what we mean by security. Um, So when we move outside of the cybersecurity space, security has a much broader meaning than perhaps we're used to thinking about. So security is about both protection, freedom, freedom from harm, But it's also about freedom to do things, to live our lives the way that we want to. So, for example, um, we might use firewalls to protect our systems and to protect the people who use them from harm. But equally, as an individual, if I buy something online, I want security to be there so that I have the freedom to feel secure enough to buy things online. And I think with cybersecurity, we don't spend enough time thinking about what we mean by the security part of it. So there are different levels of abstraction when we talk about security. It could be national security, organisational security, human security. That's my personal security. And so human vulnerabilities could be anything from the person in the organisation who accidentally causes a data breach to perhaps someone in a social context who can't access their welfare payments online. Um, So they they don't feel secure in themselves. They don't have the freedom to access what they need online. Um, and that's a real, that's really a very different kind of vulnerability. That's that's really vulnerable humans, if yeah. you like. Yeah. Um, and we have to we have to think about the human in both of those different situations. And it's it's quite amazing because you know if you look at the transition, you know, or the the transformation that's happened in a number of organisations, you know, over COVID and you know this the pivot, hard pivot to remote working and the concept of zero trust and you know the the firewall not being you know there's no longer a hard perimeter anymore. You know that a lot of is whether the human is the weakest link in the in in the overall security system, or whether you you lean back onto research that you know phishing is still the number one threat vector in these organisations, kind of pivots back to organisational psychology and and whether people actually make rational decisions when when they're going about their work. So, and I guess how to how to comply or not with security and and compliance aspects that are being driven down maybe from the top uh, at the CISO level or or, or 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 higher above so organizational secure, secure psychology and these rational decision makers you know what what did you discover in your research around these aspects well of course we like to think um, that people make rational decisions about things like cybersecurity and whether to comply or not um, and and as i said i'm i'm not a trained psychologist. So I go back to the research that's been done in fields like organisational psychology and I look at the different contexts in which they've done the research and then I take what they've done and I try and use it as a lens through which to understand cybersecurity problems. And so we know from psychological research that people don't necessarily make rational decisions. There's a whole host of heuristics and biases that come into play when you make a decision in a real-world context. And that's what we quite often fail to take into account when we think about cybersecurity solutions. 
And so there were, there were kind of three, three areas that really struck home with me when I looked at the organisational psychology literature, the idea of social loafing, the free rider effect and the sucker effect as ways of explaining why people do what they do and why they probably don't always make the best decisions around cyber security. So social loafing is, can kind of be translated into I've been really good and I've been doing everything that security asked me to do um, and my workload is really high at the moment so do you know what, I'm just going to cut myself some slack and I feel entitled to kick back and breach security a little bit, it won't matter. Then you've got the free rider effect and that's kind of you rely on somebody else. So you could see your end user thinking to themselves, do you know what, if this was really that bad, if I really shouldn't do it, then my IT department would have locked it down so I can't, so it can't be that bad. And then you've got the um, the sucker effect, which is, well, other people breach security and they haven't been stopped or caught. So why should I be a sucker and do all the complying? Um, and when you start to look at it like that, you know, it suddenly becomes suddenly becomes obvious that people probably don't always make rational. They don't make the kind of decisions that we would like them to make about security. Let's put it like that. And I get, you know, there's obviously the the trend or the drive to make security as frictionless as as possible. You know, we saw the kind of MFA fatigue kind of incidents in the in in the recent past and and things like that. But but I, I guess I I'm going back to the actually the way I framed the question previously. Actually, using the word comply kind of implies an authoritative or authoritarian kind of diktat approach from the CISO uh, versus actually, I think, you know, your early research on the role of the successful CISO and how you apply organizational behavior and, and social psychology to the, the leadership role of the CISO kind of centers more on building that kind of transactional understanding relationship with employees. Maybe a little bit more on that, because I'm, I'm conscious I did use the word comply, which which actually is authoritarian in yeah. terms of an overall leadership approach to security. Yes. Yeah, so the, the early research that, that you've just referred to, I spent some time looking at language and the language that CISOs were using to talk about security and the way that they talked about it with end users. Um, and, and since then, um, I've come across some, uh, some research in the healthcare literature that talks about the relationship between GPs and patients um, and the need to move from GPs requiring patients to comply. So you go to your GP and he or she says, you take this medicine. And if you don't take it, then it's your fault if you don't get better. Um, and, and in the healthcare space, they've realised that that doesn't necessarily work very well. Um, and what, what they've suggested is that we need to move to what's called a point of concordance. And concordance is where the, your GP will tell you that this is the medicine you need to take and you can go back and you can say, that's great, but that medicine won't let me have an, a drink while I'm, you know, while I'm taking those tablets. So could I just wait 24 hours, 48 hours, I'm going to a party, you know, I'll start it then, that <laughs> Select, kind of thing. Selective, yes. So what does that, what does that look like for, for cybersecurity? How do we reach that open and honest communication so that we can, we can not require people to comply, but we can negotiate with them something that works for them as well as something that works for security? And that's something I'm really interested in at the moment. In um, the healthcare paper that I read, they refer to it as dancing, not wrestling. And I really like that. You dance with the end user. You don't wrestle them into submission. And uh, one of of the other pieces of that was the, again, comply, compliance and the the impact of uh, the regulator and the regulatory environment on on the role of the CISO and actually how to drive user awareness and, and, you know, reduce human vulnerabilities. 
I think you, you saw a difference between the US regulatory environment and the role of the CISO versus versus places like the UK. I mean, that, that was something that was very pronounced, I think, uh, back in the, the, the days when you wrote that, that, that initial research. I think we've moved more in the UK to that, that compliance approach where people are expected to do the right thing. Um, it, certainly when I did that research, it, it was very much the case that, that it was that it was around mandatory training um, and auditing. That was the focus for, for security a lot of the time. I think we're more creative in the UK and we've always had a more creative approach to cybersecurity. Perhaps it's due to, due to resources. Um, but the CISOs I interviewed back then, and I think CISOs today would certainly agree with this, is that they tend to think that people do want to do the right thing. It's just a question of finding out how to enable them to do the right thing with minimum friction to their day-to-day working practices. And you, you sort of mentioned uh, in, in your research also that the, the CISO can be seen as in a way detached from the business or you know running parallel to the business, which implies that they're not integrated into the business strategy and yeah. and the business overall. And, um, you know, sort of being a highly specialised um authoritative figure um, doesn't necessarily give you the ability to to integrate fully into strategy and, and everything else. So when, when you sort of take all that, you know, what, what recommendations would you have for CIS? Well, one, has that changed since you since you wrote, wrote the, the initial research? But, you know, what, what is the role of the CISO in in kind of implementing a security cultural change today and, and sort of any best practice that practices that you can bring to bear? So I think back when I did that original research, um, CISOs, what I found was that CISOs were trying to align themselves with other parts of the organisation. So they would try and sound a bit like finance and talk about return on investment all the time. Um, And that's just one example. And I think now what we've seen is is there is a cohort of CISOs who have matured necessarily over over time. And they now have the confidence in what they do and how they do it um, to be embedded in the organisation. They are much the best CISOs are much better at talking to the board. They know that's a really key skill. Um, and they're also good at talking to, um, to ordinary end users in the organisation. And I think even more importantly, they know when they don't know enough about cultural change. Um, and they are not afraid now to bring in specialists into that space. And I think that's that's a question of that's that's around maturity of the profession. Um, so Paul Dory, who was um, Professor Paul Dory, who was a CISO for BP, um, he said that when he started, he just stood on the CISO platform and tried hard not to fall off as it rose. <laughs> and I think the CISOs from that generation have just improved every time they've moved organisation. I think what we don't have yet is a very clear career path for CISOs. We're not generating enough at that really mature level of practice. I think where CISOs struggle now, if they struggle now with cultural change, it's often not completely their fault. It's because they probably are technical specialists. They're probably in a smaller organisation that doesn't have the resources of a, of a multinational. And so they're trying to do too much themselves. And with the best will in the world, most CISOs can't do everything from human behaviour through to deep technical stuff around automation and AI and machine learning that we expect them to do now. Yeah, it's, fa- it's fascinating because, it, you know, a lot of it is it's language, it's understanding the culture, it's understanding, you know, the the group of employees and understanding the employee itself rather than the role, I think you mentioned in, in your research. So, 
I guess you, you're very well known for the concept of patching with people. <laughs> how, how do you how do you put that into practice? Uh, so for me, patching with people um, is about. You referred to people being the weakest link earlier, um, a phrase that some of us absolutely loathe. I'm glad I glad I raised it then. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> because. Because people can be your strongest link if you get it right. This is why I'm an idealist. I, I do believe that. And I think if we put as much effort into open and honest dialogue with our end users and we accept that end users are not one homogenous group but made up of lots of different tribes, um, then, we can, then we can really start to, to see the benefits of patching with people. We patch with technology automatically. Um, patching with people... Is, is about how you communicate with them, how you bring them on board, how you involve them in, in the security process and co-create solutions with them. That brings me on to, uh, I think, the hot, the hot topic of, of today, you know, this concept of shifting left and, uh, you know, the impact of software development practices and, you know, agile development practices and you know really trying to release quickly and 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 drive feature development into into products very quickly you know the googles and the netflix etc you know I, I hosted a round table of of leading cso's actually a few weeks back and and some of the, the 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 main topic was how do we drive some level of understanding of the developer community how do we how do we bring them into security and actually make security and quality important to them when actually it's about capability, speed and feature and and and, and that overall software development lifecycle? You know, you, you, you refer to the developer community in some of your most recent research. You know, when you start to think about the people rather than the role, you know, how, how do you think about shifting left and DevSecOps or DevOps? So DevSecOps is a is a real passion of mine at the moment. How do you bring the security community and the software developer community closer together? And and by extension, as we move to AI and machine learning, how do we fold data scientists into this into this mix? Um, and I've been looking at the relationship between developers and cybersecurity practitioners since 2016. Um, and at that point in time, I really struggled to get software developers to talk to me. Um, and, and the reason they always gave was it wasn't written into their sprints. And I didn't fully understand what they meant until one of my colleagues who is a software developer told me to go away and read the Phoenix Project. And if you're a security practitioner and you haven't read the Phoenix Project, you really should. It's a quick read and it's an engaging read. But it emphasizes the fact that a successful DevSecOps environment is not just about the tools and the processes. It's also about culture and trust. And of course, what you're expecting with DevSecOps is you want everybody to be much closely uh, much more closely entwined and embedded with each other. Um, and there hasn't been enough effort by cybersecurity practitioners, by the community to understand software developers. Uh, the fact that the idea that they don't understand security is wrong. So we've done over 40 interviews, one hour interviews with software developers to understand the social practice, to understand how they live their day to day lives as software developers. They all understood the importance of security. They had no patience for security that wasn't, that wasn't defended, that wasn't explained to them, where they were expected to just take it on board without question. The software developers that we spoke to all 
were used to an environment where if you thought you have a be- thought you had a better solution, you spun it up, you presented it to your peers, and if they believed you, you went ahead with it. We need to be able to do something like that with security. They want that kind of engagement. They're not up for just do this mandatory training course. So software developers are usually seen as being the heart of the security part of the DevSecOps problem. They're very rarely seen as part of the solution. Um, and, and it's about getting closer to them. They want frictionless security because they want to get onto the next interesting project. And, and I guess, Debbie, how do you reconcile then the, the dev aspect and the ops aspect? You know, not, normally there's a little bit of a chasm between those two communities itself. Um, so one of the things I focus mainly on the, on the developer relationship with the, the, the um, cybersecurity practitioners. And we developed an intervention where we bring, it's like a two and a half day workshop, where we bring uh, people from across a DevSecOps team into the room at the same time. And we have fewer ops people attending, but we do have ops people in there. Um, so we have the three communities in the same room. It gets heated at times. Yes, I can imagine. Um, I can imagine. Yes, but very, huge... very different uh, objectives. <laughs> yes, very different objectives. But a lot of, oh, that's why you want it done that way on both sides. Um, and I think I would like to see more ops people. I would like to see more um, testers in that environment as well. Um, and of course, now we're extending it out to include data scientists. And is, is that is that the root cause issue, and just a lack of understanding of each other's roles, jobs, you know, drivers? It's certainly. I think that's a root cause, but I think it hides other problems. Um, so other problems being that if you're going to do this well, it takes time, um, and it requires people to be comfortable with feeling vulnerable, with not knowing things. And I think we do expect cybersecurity practitioners to know lots of things and they can't know everything about the software development process. It also requires it requires them to have the time and the resources. And we know that, that you know, too often we're strapped for resources with with cybersecurity. Um, there are also questions around the the deep structures of an organization that inhibit some of these initiatives. So finance, how contracts are structured, that can have an impact on how successful DevSecOps is and how that relationship works. HR. So a lot of people now, if you want to employ somebody, if they don't fit into your traditional HR roles, then you can't take them on, which sometimes means you can't get somebody that's good at security and good at software development. So I think there are lots of factors at play, but if they would just start Finding a way to talk to each other and negotiate and see things from each other's perspective, that's a really good way forward. So should our should our CISOs be manda- mandating kind of tools or processes or, you know, we've got this horrible concept of kind of code reviews that I think you mentioned, you know, is a very emotive term in itself. But, you know, is this a, is this a work together to understand? Is it a mandate, certain processes, certain tools or how should how should people think about going about this? So at the end of the day, we have to be practical. And it may be for compliance and well, regulatory compliance that some things have to be mandated. That would be my last resort. What I have seen work, work well is where a CISO has said to a software development community, 
I really need you to use this tool. And the software developers have come back and said, we hate this tool. It really gets in the way of our, of our work processes and our workflow. And the CISO went back and said, OK, well, let's not use that tool, which gives me exactly what I need. Try this tool, which goes part of the way to give me what I need. And I said to him, how did that work out? And he said, it's great. He said, because they've got a better tool. I've kind of got most of what I need. But now there's this reciprocity. They owe me something and, and they feel that, you know, they want to give something back to me now. I've, I've started to build that relationship. So I think that's that's the way forward. And I guess, you know, that goes straight to the, the heart of, you know, I think your belief, right, the need for open security dialogues within some of these organizations and within, within communities. You know, how, how should people go about these conversations at the outset and um, in a way that they have the most impact? So I think one of the things that works best is actually trying to stand in the other person's shoes. So the cybersecurity practitioner really trying to understand why the software developer does what they do. Um, so, for example, software developers don't mind meetings. They don't mind meetings about security, but they don't like meetings that interrupt their workflow. They like all their meetings in one chunk rather than different points throughout the day because otherwise they don't have enough time to focus. So I think if... if Cybersecurity practitioners can start to understand why software developers do what they do. And equally, software developers understand why cybersecurity practitioners want things done a certain way. Then, then that's, how we, that's how we make it, we make it work. Um, but sometimes that needs to be facilitated because some people do that really well naturally. And if they do it well naturally, they don't understand why everybody else doesn't do it. And people who don't do it naturally think that it's a skill that can't be learned, but it can. Yeah, that is that is fascinating. Fascinating. And I guess it, 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 it sort of central to that is making sure that we, we bring diverse opinions into the workforce. You know, we, we clearly have a very challenging diversity and inclusion issue within within cybersecurity. Um, I guess... Why why should we be thinking about more diverse security risk uh, business kind of conversations at the at the board table or throughout the organisation? You know, how, how do you think about diversity and inclusion and beyond kind of impacting the the future of the future of information security? So for me, diversity is is about more than what we might traditionally think as being diversity. Um, for me, it's also about diversity of thought and creativity. Um, so. I came into this profession from a very different background to a lot of people. I don't think I could do that now. Um, and I think that's part of the, the sort of growing pains of a profession maturing. And as cybersecurity has matured, it's become more stovepiped and it's probably become less creative. We think there are certain things that we know, we know how to do now. Um, but of course, attackers haven't become less creative. Um, and so for me, it's about how do we bring diversity of thought, diff people from different backgrounds, that might be demographic backgrounds, it might be gender, it might be, um, it might be just academic backgrounds, different ways of thinking. How do we bring them together? Um, and that's why I'm interested in transdisciplinary research. So how do we bring different different disciplines together, but in combination with stakeholders and customers and real world applications? Um, how do we use initiatives like design thinking to actually to actually sort of provoke ourselves into coming up with new ways of thinking about old problems? That's fast, fascinating. I guess I've got one last question for you, if I may. Your early research was on, you know, what CISOs could do to um, to, to, to drive security adoption and compliance within, within the organisation. The world has 
has moved on quite dramatically like, across across numerous things. Right, I'm not even going to talk about politics and economics, but you know, it's moved on, and um, you know, the adversarial in- environment is as as bad as it's ever been, I guess. And um, you know, the complexity of some of these organisations is as complex as it's ever been. Um, this the role of the CISO and the tenure of the CISO is as short as it's ever been. You know, what what the common mistakes that you see kind of security leaders doing today, you know, based on the research that you've you've been working on in your experience in the industry and and any final recommendations for for security leaders out there? One of the things that I've noticed recently, and it was actually somebody I work with who drew my attention to this, is the amount of pressure that CISOs are under. The tenure of a CISO is is relatively short. Um, and I think they burn out pretty quickly now with the kinds of incidents that we've that we've seen. Um, and so there is an initiative actually, um, actually in Australia, um, called Cyberminds that act- that aims to tackle burnout in cybersecurity communities. And and I kind of dismissed it at first, but the more I thought about it, particularly from a CISO perspective, the more I thought, yeah, this is something that we need to start paying attention to. Um, we, we need people to start looking after themselves in these roles so that they can be effective. Um, and I suppose that's that's probably one of my my main takeaways at the moment. I'm really interested in in how that how that plays out. That is that's a fantastic uh, way to end because we 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 definitely see the the mental challenges of of what's happening as in a security leadership role, what what teams have been through, and and the challenges of the job, and and you know the need to support you know people doing this role, which which can be quite lonely at times, I I believe. Debbie, thank you so much for joining us uh, here at Cyber Insiders. Thank you. Cyber Insiders. Untold stories from behind the cyber front line. Follow and rate on your podcast app. Adama. Together, we've got this.